show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. Wondered whether to do a sort of Irishy hello then and sort of started and then stopped. Um, welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no Irish accents. I'm Tim and I'm joined by I'm a drinking buddy Leary. What are we, and I've hinted, serving today? Top of the morning to you, Tim. Oh, she did it. <laughs> um <laughs> I knew you would. Well, I have to do it because you know me. It's not like me to not have the right drink for the right episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the right drink for this episode. Not because sure. I'm disorganised. It's because, unfortunately, I just don't like it. Soz. <sighs> yeah. So, well, I'm, I'm personally... This episode already. <laughs> I'm, I'm serving hate <laughs> and a San Miguel. <laughs> but we're going to be talking about Guinness. <laughs> right. And you thought a San Miguel was the closest thing to um, a stout. It was the closest thing could... to my hand in the fridge. So Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well done. I've got a Guinness, obviously. Mm. <laughs> um, fun fact. Um I um so I'm in work yet again. Uh, it, it is lunchtime. And so for lunch, I popped down to the Tesco downstairs Mm. and uh, got myself a sausage roll. And I was hoping for like a small bottle of Guinness or something, but they only came in um, four pack of cans. So, uh, yeah. So when everyone was getting their like prepackaged sandwiches and fruit and stuff, I was queuing up at Tesco with um, a single sausage roll and four pack of Guinness. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I had brought my can into the office and uh, poured myself a, a lovely glass of Guinness. I mean, what you really should have done is tried to finish all four cans by the end of the episode. <laughs> I don't think I am going to do that. No? But, okay. um, it To be honest, there's quite a lot to say about Guinness, so let's see how it goes. Um, first question, how Irish is Guinness? Um, 100%. 100%, let's find out. So, in the pro-Irish corner, um, it is an Irish dry stout. So, in that sense, 100%. Um, that originated in the brewery of Arthur Guinness at St. James's Gate in Dublin, Ireland in 1759. The Guinness Storehouse is a tourist attraction at that uh, brewery. And it's been open since 2000 and it has received over 20 million visitors. Also, in the Yes, It's Irish corner, it is the best-selling alcoholic drink in Ireland, where Guinness & Co. Brewery makes almost €2 billion Euros worth of beer annually. So, hmm. I think all of that is in the Yes, 100% corner. I've got some things that might make it slightly less Irish. Okay. Um, so let's go over those. Uh, just to get immediately cancelled by all the Irish people. Uh, it's one of the most successful alcohol brands worldwide brewed in almost 50 countries and available in over 120. The company moved its headquarters to London at the beginning of the Anglo-Irish trade war in 1932. And in 1997, Guinness PLC merged with Grand Metropolitan to form the multinational alcoholic drinks producer Diageo PLC based in London, or as you would know them, Diego. Diego, yeah. 
it, yeah, your Mexican friend Diego, <laughs> who owns a lot of drinks. Um, it opened a US brewery in 2018, um, but it mostly brews the blonde American lager there. The UK is the only sovereign state to consume more Guinness than Ireland. And the third largest Guinness drinking nation is Nigeria, followed by the USA. Uh, also, in the not strictly Irish corner, Guinness has a significant share of the African beer market, where it has been sold since 1827. And about 40% of worldwide total Guinness volume is brewed and sold in Africa, with foreign and um, extra stout the most popular variant. And, of course, the drink itself evolved from London Porter. So, if you want to know what happened up to the point of Guinness becoming popular, return to the Porter episode, because that will explain to you um, all about that sort of delicious dark beer drink and where it came from. Uh, but we'll pick up from the end of that episode, essentially. So, in the It's Not Irish Corner, it's that it evolved out of the London Porter craze, and also it's very much a worldwide drink. I would say, as opposed to just not being Irish. What do you think of that? Is Ireland going to cancel me? Mm, I mean, it's still Irish in my eyes. It's just had global success. There's, yeah. Yeah. It, I think that's it was founded in Ireland by an Irish guy. So that makes it Irish as far as I'm concerned. It was. Exactly. Just throwing a few facts in there so that people don't still have this idea of it being like, a sort of only Irish traditional little brewery. It is a massive worldwide thing. It's not like a All little right, craft so brewery in Dublin, no. It is not. It is not. <laughs> but let's go let's go back and find its history. So picking up after the London Porter craze. So Arthur Guinness um, started brewing ales in seventeen fifty nine, as I said at the St James Gate Brewery. And it was there in December of fifty nine, uh, in fact New Year's Eve uh, December 59, so just about, he signed a 9,000-year lease at £45 per annum for the unused brewery. That is some good business craft. <laughs> um, ten years later, uh, so 69, Guinness first exported his ale, and he shipped six and a half barrels to Great Britain. That's where it's starting off. The local um, kind of Irish producer shipping a few barrels to Great Britain. Uh, he started selling the dark beer Porter in 1778. And the first Guinness beers to use the term stout, so single stout and double stout, were actually in the 1840s. So a long time after Arthur Guinness had been selling Porter. Throughout the book of its history, Guinness produced only three variations of a single beer type, Porter or single stout, double or extra, and foreign stout for export. Stout originally referred to the beer's strength, so stout porter if it was a strong porter, but eventually shifted its meaning towards being about the body and colour. So we do think of stout beers now as being kind of like that thick uh, dark liquid, but it was originally just about alcohol strength. Uh, the sales grew very rapidly in a short period of time, uh, really. It went from 350,000 barrels in 1868 to uh, 780,000 barrels just under in 1876. In 1886, so we're just skipping over the decades, Guinness becomes a public company and at that point was averaging sales of 1.1 million barrels a year. And at this point, 
That was all despite the fact that the brewery hadn't advertised, it hadn't offered its beer at a discount, it owned no public houses, and yet the company was valued at £6 million and shares were 20 times oversubscribed. Really an incredible business without doing some of the traditional stuff that you would expect. By 1914, so just start of the First World War, Guinness was producing um, over two and a half million barrels of beer a year, which was more than double that of its nearest competitor, Bass, uh, the British brewery, and was supplying more than 10% of the total UK beer market. So when you take a step back and you look at that timeline, it's pretty, it's a pretty extraordinary tale historically how Porter was this massive thing in London in the 1730s, 40s, and then it was only a couple of decades later that Guinness was like, I can do that and sell it back to them instead. <laughs> so it went from being a major British export to Ireland, the trade completely reversed so that Britain was now importing it from Ireland. Um, so very successful. By 1930, it was the seventh largest company in the world. Not just drinks company, company. So, huge success story. Um, to celebrate the founding, uh, Guinness tried to launch uh, a special day in 2009, Guinness Day, uh, also called Arthur's Holiday. It actually just started a, as a factory thing. So they asked their employees to raise um, a pint at 5.59pm to honour the opening of the factory. Uh, it sort of took off an idea of, oh, let's have a big celebration for this, and it became like another St. Patrick's Day. Uh, it didn't last very long, though, because in 2012, there were a slew of news reports that noted that emergency service calls tripled on that day. <laughs> so there was a lot of criticism that really <laughs> it was just about drinking more, so they cancelled it in 2013. So a very short-lived uh, Guinness Day. But, I mean, we've still got St. Patrick's Day, so... <laughs> uh, the storehouse uh, attached to the brewery was reportedly the first steel-framed skyscraper in Britain and Ireland. Um, it was the main brewery from 1902 to 88, and then it sat idle for 10 years, and then it opened as a tourist attraction in 2000. Really notable thing about it is the atrium, is shaped like a giant pint glass hmm. and at the top there's a gravity bar with a 360 degree view of Dublin. Now if that was a real glass filled with standard pints of Guinness, how many pints do you reckon would be in it? Oh, oh my gosh. It's seven stories tall. I don't know why I'm looking up. As if it's going to give me inspiration. <laughs> Don't imagine. Yeah. Um, She's thinking, how many could I drink? <laughs> I think it's going to be somewhere in the region of 220,000 pints. 14.3 million. Whoa, okay. I was way out. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. You usually overestimate wildly. <laughs> and then my fact becomes unimpressive. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. If that... If that glass, that massive glass atrium contained Guinness, it would be 14.3 million pints. It's pretty big. Uh, if you want to see it in person, I think the best place to go and take a look at it is to watch an episode of Travel Man um, on Channel 4 hmm. or All 4 or whatever they're calling it these days um, with Joe Lycett and uh, Moan Rizwan. 
they go to the uh, Guinness factory tour and they are mightily unimpressed with all the information and just want a pint of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. Um, what else should I tell you about? A bit of... Uh, there's so much to talk about in Guinness. I've had to sort of be a little bit selective, but I'm still going to ramble on for far too long. <laughs> anyway, uh, welfare, I think, is one of the things they're noted for, the Guinness company. So by 1900... The brewery was operating these welfare schemes, which were um, really kind of like quite advanced for, for the time and industry, uh, for 5,000 of its employees. By 1907, the welfare schemes cost the brewery £40,000 a year, which was one-fifth of the total wages bill. So, a lot. But I do feel like in the drinks industry, we find these stories a lot. Like, they seem to pioneer welfare over and above other factory industries. Mm. It's just interesting. Um, I guess the occasional pipe makes you more friendly. Uh, when World War One broke out in 1914, employees at the St. James Brewery were encouraged to join the British forces and go and fight. Over 800 employees served in the war. And that was encouraged um, by um, Guinness putting in place some support packages. So soldiers' families were paid half of their wages while they were away. And they were guaranteed jobs when they returned as well. I think about 100 or so people didn't return, but for the majority they did and they were re-employed. Um, there is, there is um, a not-so-inclusive story, though, from Guinness uh, that I'll share with you, which is before 1939, if a Guinness brewer wished to marry a Catholic, they had to resign. So they wouldn't employ Catholics mm. and you weren't allowed to marry a Catholic. Um, people writing the Irish Independent said they got no qualms about selling drinks to Catholics, but they did everything they could to avoid employing them until the 1960s. Wow. So it was a rule before 39, and then it, but it was like cultural practice not to hire them up until the 60s. Yeah, weirdly anti-Catholic. But there you go. Let's maybe not dig too far down that rabbit hole, because it is Ireland. Um, there are some beautiful buildings near me. Um, in Snowsfields in, in Southwark and they are the Guinness Trust buildings and the Guinness Trust was founded in 1890 by Edward Guinness the first Earl of and I do not know how to say this but I'm going to say Aoife um, <laughs> and they're a great you grandson sound, of the... you sound like Wally Aoife <laughs> Aoife <laughs> um, they're a great grandson of the founder of the Guinness Brewery, and it was to help homeless people in London and Dublin. He donated £200,000 to set up the Guinness Trust in London, which is the equivalent of £25 million in today's money. Um, so they still operate. They are still kind of like a, a land-holding thing. They they have something like £3 billion worth of, of land and housing today, but they're not actually related to the brewery company. They come from the family that made their fortune there, but it's not like run or associated with the brewery sort of today. Do you want to hear a scandal? Please do. Always want a bit of goss. Yeah. So the Guinness share trading fraud um, case is is quite a business, a, a big one. It was a major business scandal of the 1980s. It involved the manipulation of the London stock market to inflate the price of Guinness. Um and that was to assist its four billion pound takeover bid for Scottish drinks company distillers. There were four businessmen who were convicted of criminal offences for taking part. Uh, Ernest Saunders, who was the CEO, Gerald Ronson, Jack Lyons, Ansi Parnes, they were called the Guinness Four. <laughs> they had to pay large fines, 
um, and three of them served prison sentences. Lyons didn't because he had ill health. So Saunders was actually the first CEO of Guinness who was not part of the Guinness family. <laughs> but from right from founding in 1759 up until the 1980s, all the CEOs had been part of the Guinness family um, because he had a lot of descendants. He had 21 children after Guinness. Bloody hell. Yeah. Whoa. With, with one wife. And wait, they weren't Catholic. Mm. <laughs> Very busy. Very busy. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, we might get to it, but the whole Guinness is good for you thing. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where that came from. Good things um, come to those. <laughs> mm, oh, <laughs> so, um, but I think that's that's kind of wild that for over two hundred years the Guinness family's on it, and the first time they decide to go for someone else, he's convicted of fraud and jailed. I mean, why isn't this on Netflix? Well, I'll tell you what would make a good series on Netflix. Um, so I'll, I'll start first of all by saying that um, Arthur Guinness's son, Arthur Guinness II, one of his sons, in, in 1821 was the one who created Extra Stout. Mm-hmm. So you know I said he'd started off with Porter, sometimes called Plain, um, and then it would be um, double strength and then extra was kind of, it was even more. And that's the one that really took off. So that's sort of the one we have now really is the extra stout. So that was actually his son who created that, which is a very promising start for the family lineage. But have you heard of the Guinness family curse? <laughs> no. Is it having 21 kids plus? <laughs> <laughs> It's not, and I actually toyed with like keeping all this back for a Halloween episode, but no, let's do it. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is a massive downer, so I hope you have poured yourself a glass of Guinness by now. Mm. Right. Uh, born in 1880, Walter Edward Guinness, or Lord Moyne, was the great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness. He was a friend of Winston Churchill and the British minister resident in the Middle East. He was assassinated near his home in Cairo by people calling themselves Fighters for Freedom of Israel. Um, The son of Lord Moyne, Brian Guinness, was married to one of the infamous Mitford sisters, Diana Mitford, in 1929. Uh, Brian and Diana were well-known members of the Bright Young People, or also called Bright Young Things, if you've seen that film, or um, read um, Vile Bodies by Evelyn Waugh. Um, Those were the sort of the aristocrats and socialites of the 1920s. But in 1932, Diana met Sir Oswald Mosley, who became the founder of the British Union of Fascists, um, began an affair with him. And in 1933, Diana abandoned Brian and their two children for her new fascist lover, marrying him three years later in Berlin in a ceremony that Adolf Hitler attended as a guest. Um, (laughs) They got imprisoned for that trial during World War II. Uh, born in 1945, Patrick Tara Brown was the son of Una Guinness, an heir to the Guinness Brewery Million Pound Fortune. Uh, according to Rolling Stone magazine, he was a central part of London's social elite in the 1960s. Became friends with Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, and so on. Um, but in December 1966, Brown was speeding through southwest London in his light blue Lotus Elan sports car when he crashed into a parked van. He was rushed to the hospital and died of his injuries shortly afterwards. He was only 21. The death of Tara Brown was still making headlines a while later um, in the Daily Mail in January 1967, and that became the inspiration for a Beatles song. 
So John Lennon started the track by bringing the newspaper over to uh, Paul McCartney's place to finish it off. Started with, I read the news today, oh boy, and includes the line, he blew his mind out in a car. So that's the final track in Sgt Pepper, A Day in the Life, and that was inspired by Guinness's accident. Lady Henrietta Guinness had three marriages and another car accident in Italy, um, uh, which uh, severely injured her, but, eventually, but it was actually depression that she succumbed to in 1978, and at the age of 35 she threw herself off the Ponte della Torre Bridge. That same year, 1978, John Guinness, a British diplomat, was involved in a car accident. While John, who was driving, survived, the accident was fatal for his four-year-old son, Peter Guinness. Additionally, an unnamed 17-year-old Guinness family member died from a suspected drug overdose, and a third descendant, Major Dennis Guinness, was also found dead in a cottage in Hampshire the same year, and he had recently been questioned by police about possible firearms offences. John Guinness was the chairman of the Dublin bank Guinness and Mahon, and the sixth cousin of the chairman of the Guinness Brewery, and so he was a target for kidnapping uh, in 1986. So according to New York Times, he'd returned home from work that day, um, found his wife and daughter tied up. The abductors attacked him and tied him up as well, but then escaped with his wife, Mrs. Guinness. There was a ransom of $2.6 million uh, demanded for her return. John freed himself, called the police. It took them eight days to find and free her uh, without payment of the ransom. So he did get her back, but then two years later, John died from a 500-foot fall on uh, Mount Snowdon. Uh, in Northern Wales. Is it called something else now? I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Wales. Um, he was cli- <laughs> but he was climbing with his wife and son and, uh, and three friends. On uh, a night of June of the same year that that happened, student at Oxford's Christchurch College was celebrating the end of their exams. Among them was um, the 22-year-old daughter of Trade and Industry Secretary and heiress to the Guinness Brewing and Banking Fortune. She was found dead the next morning after celebrating um, that she'd overdosed from heroin and alcohol. Bloody hell. Uh, Nugent was the 31-year-old niece of Guinness Eyre, um, the, the Earl of Eva, um, and was the <laughs> victim of a freak accident in 98. Um, she was driving her horse-drawn Romany caravan on a small road near her mother's home. It was her mother's birthday. She was planning to uh, take six of her young relatives to a ride in the caravan during the festivities later. She was an experienced horsewoman woman, but um, something spooked the horse and sent it speeding around a bend in the road. She couldn't um, maintain control and was crushed to death beneath the wagon. They said there were no other vehicles in the area or bright lights or noises, so it's a bit of a mystery as to what happened. And the same Earl's granddaughter had an accident and drowned in the Guinness Mansion pool in 2020. Bloody Nora. I didn't even tell you all of them. (laughs) But that is what the Guinness family curse uh, refers to. Lots of premature deaths, lots of um, drug and alcohol, lots of car accidents and things. Mm. Um, I'm not sure the curse is supernatural so much as um, a symptom of a certain lifestyle. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Yeah, maybes, maybes. For a bunch of it. Um, The family still owns 51% of the company, but uh, none of them sit on the board. Fancy marrying into the Guinness wealth? Um, <clears throat> can I put a clause in there that I am not to enter any vehicles with my <laughs> new family? <laughs> their vehicles and their horses. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably wise. 
So that's what I was saying I think would make a good Netflix documentary. <laughs> An entire sort of cross-generational story of The Curse of the Guinnesses. You could wrap that up in like a <laughs> a really dark episode of You Been Framed. <laughs> that's not where my mind is going. <laughs> I was thinking more like how um, uh, American Horror Story runs. Okay, yeah, sure. Like that. That's probably a bit more Do respectful. <laughs> British horror story rather than you being framed. Like, what do you want to send him two hundred pounds? I know. I just want Harry Hill to like narrate them all. <laughs> oh no. Okay, let's get off the family stuff and back onto the drink. Mm. Um, so, uh, in 2017, they became suitable for vegans um, because they stopped the use of eyes and glass, uh, which are fish bladders, to filter. At the yeast particles that went with the new filtration process instead. Um, the colour, have you heard it referred to as the black stuff? I have. So what colour is it? I think it might be black. No. Oh. No, it's a very dark shade of ruby. <laughs> Damn it. That is, that is its official colour. Officially, it's red. It's a very dark shade of ruby, which you can see if you kind of, you hold mm. it to the light and you look through it, but it's not the... Um... Guinness, I, I mean, this feels like quite late in the podcast already to mention that it's a stout made from water, barley, and roast malt extract, hops, <laughs> and brewer's yeast. But if you listen to the porter episode, you already knew that. Um, so a portion of the barley is roasted, which gives you know Guinness its, its dark colour and its characteristic tastes of chocolate and coffee. What I want to talk about, though, is I think the biggest change it's had in its recipe is actually not to do with any of those ingredients. But in 1959, Guinness began using nitrogen, which changed the texture and the flavour of uh, the Guinness. Um, because nitrogen bubbles are much smaller than carbon dioxide, which is kind of, you know, the common bubbles in other beers. It gives it a creamier, smoother consistency over that sharper traditional CO2 taste. And that was taken after a guy called Michael Ash, who was a mathematician turned brewer, which are obviously the best brewers, discovered kind of how to make this possible. Because nitrogen is less soluble than carbon dioxide, which allows the beer to be put under high pressure without making it fizzy. So high, the high pressure of the dissolved gas is required to enable these really small bubbles to be formed by forcing the draft beer through fine holes in a plate in the tap, which causes that characteristic surge. Um, the widget in cans and bottles, I have a widget, um, achieves the <laughs> same effect. So the widget is a small plastic ball which contains the nitrogen. And this perceived smoothness of draft Guinness is due to that low level of carbon dioxide and creaminess of the head caused by those fine bubbles that arise from the use of nitrogen. Uh, foreign extra stout though contains more carbon dioxide which gives it a slightly more acidic taste. The widget, by the way, in the can, won the Queen's Award for Technology in 1991. Now, maybe you're thinking, perhaps that was a slow year for technology, but can you think of something that probably more obviously should have won? In 1991? Uh huh. Hmm. I don't know, was it the year Concord first flew or something? No, Con Concord's much older than that. No. It was the World Wide Web. Oh, Jesus, I thought it <laughs> was much older as well. <laughs> well, the internet is older. Hmm. The internet is older, much older, but the World Wide Web was uh, 91. 
So can you <laughs> imagine like losing to the widget? To the widget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this plastic ball in a can of Guinness <laughs> was considered a bigger technological leap than the World Wide Web. <laughs> and I feel like that tells you everything you need to know about awards. <laughs> uh, right. So when Guinness is poured, the have you ever noticed how the gas bubbles seem like they're traveling downwards mm-hmm. on the edge of the glass? It's quite mesmerizing. So, uh, this is drag. <laughs> <laughs> Not the drag you're thinking of. Oh, right, um, okay. So, bubbles that touch the walls of a glass are slowed in their travel upwards. So, that's kind of the drag effect. It's slowing it down. While bubbles in the centre of the glass are quite free to rise to the surface. And they form this rising column. The rising bubbles create a current... Uh, by the entrainment of the surrounding fluid and so as beer rises in the centre the beer near the outside of the glass ends up falling the downward flow pushes the bubbles near the glass towards the bottom so that effect does occur in any liquid but it's obviously very noticeable with the dark nitrogen stout because you've got the dark liquid and the light coloured bubbles and there was a study published in 2012 that showed that the effect is due in particular to the shape of the glass coupled with the small bubble size. So uh, th- the vessel widens with height, so the bubbles will sink along the wall, uh, along the walls. Uh, that, so that would also work for a standard pint, not just the Guinness pint glass. But if you were to have what's called an anti-pint, <laughs> so the <laughs> vessel actually narrows... Uh, with the height, which is makes me feel like weird. It makes me feel weird to think of a glass that's narrow at the top and wider at the bottom. Yeah. But that the bubbles would rise then because it wouldn't have the uh, the same effect. Okay. With that move to nitrogen gas in the nineteen sixties, uh, they felt it was very important to keep the two stage pour ritual in order to bring a better consumer acceptance of that hydrogen not hydrogen that would be that would be a very risky drink nitrogen based delivery um are you talking about this in your marketing and advertising slot at all about the sort of the two-stage pour no i'm not actually i obviously there's okay no 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 <laughs> so i'll well the first thing i'll say is um Guinness hadn't been cask conditioned for decades, so the two-stage pour is perhaps most likely a marketing ploy that doesn't really affect the beer's taste. Um, <laughs> though some people will argue that, but there doesn't seem to be any particular evidence that it really mm-hmm. um, does matter. We've both been bar people. Did your heart always sink when someone ordered a Guinness? Um... Not particularly, not no. But I, I, again, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I used to work in a really old school Welsh pub and we had regulars there. They had their own glasses behind the bar that we had to serve their drinks in. Mm-hmm. But there was one guy, he'd only ever come in for a pint, but he'd come in for one pint every night at the same time. And he used to insist that, um, and I was told this when I started working there, like this is what you do every night for this guy that's coming in. Um, you pour, you do the first, you know, like the one, two stage Guinness pour that you're talking about. You do that first bit about quarter of an hour before he arrived. So about quarter to the hour when he was coming, you do that first pour and he'd insist that you put it in the fridge and that would sit in the fridge then until he got through the door. And then as soon as he arrived, then he'd say, oh, I'll have my Guinness, please. And then you do the second bit while he was there. Well, he insisted um, on that's... that. 
That's an interesting approach. So um, that so used look, to annoy me as a bar girl, but yeah, that's quite annoying. There were times where it would be really busy, and I'd miss the time, and I wouldn't have mm-hmm. put it in the fridge, and he'd turn up, and he'd be like, "What the hell is my Guinness?" Um, <laughs> but no, I, I didn't used to bother me that much because I'd usually pour pour it and then let it sit, and then just say, "Do you mind if I serve somebody else while this waits?" And generally, yeah. they wouldn't mind. You just got to do a bit of strategizing with your time. <laughs> so the the official way to pour is that um, it has to begin with a cool, dry glass. You want to hold the glass at a forty-five degree angle beneath the tap spout. Pull the handle forward and let the stout flow, filling it up until you reach um, just about three quarters of an inch below the top of the glass. You let it settle for precisely, and I dare you to be able to do this precisely. 119 and a half seconds. <laughs> Why they don't just say about two minutes is ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, but which I think tells you straight away that it's marketing bullshit. <laughs> what difference is that half a second going to make to the flavour, really? Uh, you bring the glass to 45 degree angle again, but push the handle backwards this time until the head is just proud of the glass. Don't let it overflow. Never use a spatula to level the head. That's just blasphemy, it says. I used to draw in it. Did, did you used to have that? Because when you're doing uh, no, that I've... bit, you could draw a shamrock in the top. I used to do that. Yeah, I did not. I, I've had pint, quaint pints like that, but I didn't do it myself. No, I didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got one more little thing, and then I think we should have an ad break. Okay. Ad break. I mean, we're not... Yeah, it's we're not it's not like a proper podcast. I'm not being paid for these advertisements, I'm just <laughs> passing to you, but you know. Um all I was gonna close with is that their most expensive one they've made, as as standard, not like a weird auctioned one, but was a um small batch amber rail called seventeen fifty nine, which was to commemorate its founding, and it cost thirty-five dollars. And it was made with heated whiskey malt and came in a black velvet lined box schmancy <laughs> it's very schmancy too, fa- too schmancy for guinness really but there yeah. you go right <sighs> breaks please time for the ads yeah i'm just going to talk for a long time about ads because you can't mm-hmm. not with guinness really they are so 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 famous for their adverts they are mm-hmm. masters at it um but it's interesting like you said they didn't advertise for so long they didn't need to the beer sold itself um, it was actually 170 years that they went without needing to advertise, which is an impressive feat. But it, it was around 67 years before they started advertising that they adopted their infamous emblem, which is the... Harp. Harp, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, the harp. It's based on a famous 14th century Irish harp known as the O'Neill or the Brian Borough harp. Uh, which is now preserved in the Library of Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, there have been some changes to the design of the harps in, over the years, um, like a reduction in the, the number of strings shown on the harp, etc. But nothing major. It's still a very iconic emblem. Most people can recognise it, the harp alone, without any brand colouring or the logo or the name or anything else. It's pretty uh, epic. Uh, The harp is also the official national emblem of the Republic of Ireland as well. It can be found on their coinage. 
but there did need to be a difference between them because Guinness had trademarked the harp symbol. Uh, so they trademarked it in 1876. So the Irish Free State Government of 1922 had to find a way around it to use the harp. So all they've done is flipped it. <laughs> um, so the Guinness harp always appears with the straight edge, the soundboard on the left, and the government harp is always shown with the straight edge to the right. Uh, fun fact, when Guinness entered the world of creating lager, um, in 1960, the first lager was called Harp, for that reason. Um, but yes, let's talk about ads. So it was 1929. Um, sales were starting to dwindle, but not massively, but they were starting to drop. So they thought, OK, maybe let's try this advertising thing. Um, so the Guinness family agreed that the brand could make adverts, but there was a stipulation that... Um, the quality of the advertising had to be as good as the quality of the beer. Uh, in February 1929, the first official Guinness advert appeared in the National British Press with the slogan, Guinness is good for you. Um, so yeah, through much of the 20th century, doctors thought Guinness had lots of medicinal properties. Um, even until like the 50s, mothers in Irish hospitals were given Guinness after giving birth because of the high iron content. So um I'm sure we'll hear more about that from you later, Mabes. Are you going to tell us I about mean, that? I wasn't or... going to. No? Okay. Well, just, just to say what the health benefits might be. I, I mean, I can tell I you a bit about sure. it Like while, while we're at it. I could just the, see you um... nodding, yeah, so I thought... Uh... Oh, well, no, no, <laughs> do you know what? I was nodding because, I mean, I don't know whether your mum's of the same generation, but I know that my mum would have had not Guinness actually, Mackeson, I believe mm. is her preferred stout, but like would have had some yeah. um, while she was pregnant because at that time doctors said, yeah, go for it, great. Yes. And obviously kind of like in some ways it seems absurd to say drink alcohol when you're pregnant, but there are nutritional benefits that relate specifically to things like pregnancy because aside from you know generally good things like b vitamins and antioxidants and stuff which as a beer it's much higher in than other beers mm -hmm. so it's good for your heart in that way um obviously it also had iron um but it also has much higher levels of folate which is uh well it's an it's an acid that specifically relates to the creation of new cells so you know you you would know that kind of pregnant people take folic acid and stuff but it's a beer that's higher in it i mean obviously there are non-alcoholic ways to get all mm. these all these nutrients but they're not entirely wrong in that yeah it does have higher levels of nutrients that are beneficial um to, yeah. to kind of that state while, while i've interrupted as well aside from kind <laughs> of like myth busting any health benefits which actually are generally there um you know you said guinness is good for you mm-hmm do you know who who wrote that? Who created that slogan? Um, it wasn't because I've I think I've delved into every different creative person that's worked on the brand beyond there, but I don't think I did look into that one. No, it's it's a famous crime writer, um, mm. not Agatha Christie, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, which maybe uh, people don't know as well. But I've got some of her character. poetry coming up. Yeah. Oh, I think, okay I think, then. All right, yeah. I jump the gun. Carry on. I didn't realize that she. Uh, came up with that but she did yeah yeah sorry I, I didn't realize Lord she did peter that. whimsy as, mm. a, as a as a detective as a crime detective but i'll, uh, I'll let you crack right. on now <laughs> no wait, i'm glad you 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 
did interrupt because I didn't know it was her that coined that. But <laughs> um, yeah, they, they used the Guinness's Good For You strapline for decades, basically until the marketing kind of standards told them they couldn't use it anymore. <laughs> they, they went for it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was really successful, that Guinness's Good For You advert, their first one in 1929. And they soon chose an agency to represent the Guinness brand. It was S.H. Benson. Uh, they did such a good job that they continued to be the Guinness agency for the next 40 years. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Just opening another Guinness. <laughs> I'm taking on your challenge. <coughs> God, this has turned into such a chaotic episode with my coughing and your binge drinking. I tried to do it. I tried to do it subtly, but it just wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, um, so yeah, S.H. Benson did such a good job. They continued to be the Guinness agency for the next 40 years. And this partnership resulted in some of the brand's most memorable poster and TV ads. Um, it was S.H. Benson that employed the artist John Gilroy. And he is the mastermind behind some of the most recognisable Guinness adverts. And he does all of the illustrations that we still recognise today. Um, he illustrated pretty much all of their ads for the next 30 years. Um, so some of those include, kind of going in chronological order, in 1930, Guinness for Strength. Um, there's quite an infamous poster of a guy holding a steel girder above his head. Um, so that came from a series of Guinness and Strength um, adverts in that campaign. It just I bet Ironbury weren't happy with that. Oh, I bet, yeah. Didn't think of that. Let's throw um, to the Ironbury episode. But it depicted men performing feats of ridiculous strength with the help of their Guinness. Um, in 1935 was My Goodness, My Guinness, that campaign. Um, so Gilroy, the illustrator, he'd been trying to develop like a family that he could use across Guinness adverts and campaigns. Um, but it was actually, he went to the circus and found inspiration from zoo animals. And he found they were more interesting to work with the brand than trying to create this family. So he used the zoo animals and they were used until the 1950s. They did really well. Um, so a subsequent series of posters featured a distraught looking zookeeper in the background um, with mischievous animals around him. So a stout drinking ostrich was one of them, a sea lion balancing a Guinness on his nose and of course the famous Guinness toucan. Um, the Toucans probably come as become as like almost as cinemas with the brand as the harp, really. As soon as you see the Toucan, now you know it's Guinness. Um, it was initially intended to be a pelican, um, but it was changed after the writer, Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, wrote. Um, if he can say as you can, Guinness is good for you, how grand to be a Toucan, just think what Toucan do. Yeah. And so it was a toucan, not a pelican. I think she made some really good decisions for Guinness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so moving on to 1955 was when they moved from print into TV. Uh, but the zoo animals served as inspiration here. They kept them on board for the TV. Um, it's a really nice advert, actually. Their first advert. It was actually um, on air during the first TV broadcast as well. So really pushing boundaries um so the zoo animals it starts with like a it's a black and white 
obviously Guinness. It's still, and that's what I love about those old school Guinness ads, even though they're back from the 50s and it was black and white, it's still like, oh, it could be shot today because it's just that black and white pint. Um, so it's like a zoomed in pint of Guinness and it's moving a little bit and then the camera zooms out and as it's zooming out some text appears and says a Guinness poster comes to life and then we see a sea lion scuffling around with a pint of Guinness on his nose so it's instantly that poster's there and then the camera pans over to a zookeeper who's on his break and he's eating something and you can see he's got a bottle of Guinness but his hand is looking for his pint of Guinness and then he spots the animal running around with a pint on his nose and he exclaims oh my goodness and then the final frame again says, Guinness is good for you. So that was their first ever TV commercial. Um, not a TV ad, but one I wanted to throw in you. Uh, when they did the parody of the Bayou Tapestry, I just really liked that. I don't know if you've seen it before. Um, it was just a really successful print ad and poster that they did, where they just reimagined the Bayou Tapestry and instead of what you'd normally see it looked almost identical it's only when you look at it you notice that they're all holding pints of guinness and the top of the poster like the original says battle of hastings 1066 and then the bottom it says bottle of guinness 1966 so it's a really nice poster um you can actually view it at the vna now if you do want to see it mm. um but i did like that um back to the adverts so in the 60s, um, so they'd kind of got their money's worth out of the zoo animals and doing those bits and bobs. Uh, but in the 60s, the Guinness adverts took on an after-work theme. So they were one of the first companies to analyse consumer consumption habits. And they find it just completely shift their approach from those playful ads with the animals and John Gilroy's kind of ideas they wanted something a bit more sophisticated and for the first time they showed the actual product at Guinness being drunk by a person. Um, so the first instance of that was an advert called Shipyard, just a guy that's been working all day on the shipyard, very kind of working um, class feel to it, the nice voiceover, and it just shows him enjoying a pint of Guinness at the end of the day. Um, not long after that, in 1969, Guinness moved its account from Benson. So 40 years, a long time they'd worked together. They moved to J. Walter Thompson in the 60s, JWT. Uh, and in the late 60s, more kind of started in the 70s, they started to produce um, a series of really simple but quite witty commercials. Uh, one of the more famous one is called Black Pot. Um, that helped to reinforce the brand's uniqueness compared to other beers. Um, this one actually won lots of critical acclaim and a Cannes Grand Prix award. Um, it's quite simple, it's just a, a pool table and you see somebody striking the white ball, hitting the black and as that's happening it cuts to like somebody drinking a Guinness as well and as the black goes into the pot the guy finishes the pint and the voiceover says there's a simple pleasure in slowly putting away the black. It's just a really nice advert. I think that mechanic is the one that I'm most familiar with mm. from Guinness. Like, I think it certainly in my memory endured like through the 90s. It was about things transitioning between white and black, and then you're seeing like the pint settle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really effective, isn't it? Yeah. Because it kind of it does look very sort of beautiful and thoughtful. Very, yeah. It's lovely. I think winning that award gave them a bit of fire in their bellies to be a bit more 
cinematography was like in mm. their minds they were like what can we do um so they worked with an irish agency called arcs on an advert called island which eventually won them a silver cans lion award um going to try and pronounce what the advert's called it's it's not going to be great but the commercial's known as i think it's tush agdacht um, so it translates to they are coming. It's the only line that's spoken in the advert. Um, and given that it's from the 70s, you can see why it was so groundbreaking because there's almost like drone footage and stuff when you're watching it. It's like the camera's panning above this island and there's like a white stone building, which is obviously a pub. And then it suddenly pans into the pub and there's men there sitting looking at the clock and the clock's ticking and they're waiting for something and there's a dog looking like they're waiting. And in between shots of this pub and the guys waiting, it goes out to sea and there's these three guys rowing like crazy in a boat. And there's that tension of like waiting, waiting, waiting. So time was obviously something very early on they started playing with. And then obviously, I'm not going to say it again, but they are coming, one of the Irish guys says, once they've arrived in the boat. And then they pour the pints, they sit down and they have the Guinness. So although they didn't have the whole time messaging really fully conveyed then you could see where they were going mm -hmm. with it um but yeah it, it's it won a lot of awards and at the time it was winning kind of best advert of the century awards so that was when guinness started to really kind of come to its own with tv ads um in the 70s and 80s the toucans started to make a transition to tv um so obviously the sea lion had had his day <laughs> Um, in the 70s and 80s, the Toucans came. Um, in 1981, there were, like, if you, you can watch them all. If you just go onto Google and type in Toucan Guinness TV advert, you'll find a lot from the 70s and 80s. And for me, it was a, a, a weird one. I don't know if it quite worked. It was, they lost their way a bit. It was trying too hard to be funny and quirky. Like one of them was, um, there was like a couple sat on a sofa They've obviously just settled down in front of the TV for the night. They're pouring themselves a Guinness each. And we can hear like these weird gurgling sounds like a baby, but not quite like a baby. It's weird, this weird noise. And they're looking at each other and she goes like, oh, whose turn is it tonight? And it's his turn. So he's like, oh, for God's sake. And he picks up a baby bedtime book and he goes <laughs> into the bedroom and there's just a token sitting there and he starts reading his story. It, it was it doesn't make much sense it's very very odd another example there's a guy sitting there pouring a glass of guinness and the phone is ringing and this goes on for a long time because obviously it takes a long time to pour a guinness and the phone is ringing the whole time there's no voiceover there's no music it's just the sound of this phone ringing and then once he's finished he eventually picks up the phone and goes hello oh what again and then it's for the toucan who's sat next to him <laughs> it's just odd so yeah the the toucans on tv were strange but um i think the main reason they wanted to kind of make the transition from print into tv for the toucans is because it was around that time that guinness started um canning guinness so canned guinness came out then so obviously toucan just lended itself perfectly so yeah mm -hmm. um one thing i did love that they did in 1983 however <clears throat> was a great campaign called the Guinless campaign. Um, so again, they were facing declining sales in the early 80s, so they needed a bit of a home run in the ad department. 
so they did a fresh collaboration with an agency called Alan Brady and Marsh. Uh, the Guinness campaign. So it was a nod to the original Benson adverts, the Guinness is good for you. And the very basic first print advert was simply an image or a, an illustration of a glass of Guinness and the words Guinness is good for you. And all they did was a simple ad. It was an empty pint glass and Guinness isn't good for you. Um, so it was a nod to the fact that the government had outlawed the use of Guinness is good for you. Um, so they were oh, trying. Right. So they were trying to say, well, Guinness isn't good for you either. So they had the empty glass. Guinness is good for you, and also they had like a fake self-help group um, for like friends of the Guinness things like that. So I remember it- fake self-help groups being a massive thing at the end of the eighties and the early nineties. Like every <laughs> brand had a fake self-help group. I do remember that. What a weird advertising trend that was. <laughs> well, it did really well. Um, it was appreciated by like the 20 to 30 something working class male, which was their target audience. Um, within three months of the campaign, according to my friend Diego, <laughs> they'd <laughs> achieved 87% awareness among all adults, including a vicar in London who'd placed a massive sign outside his church that said, Godliness isn't good for you. So uh, everyone was jumping on that. <laughs> um, that's when things started to get interesting again for uh, Guinness. So they got a copywriter, Mark Neck, W-N-E-K, Neck. Um, he got his first crack at the brand and he came up with a new two-word tagline, which you might remember. Um, so the ad campaign was the Pure Genius campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's famous because they had Rutger Hauer, the guy off Blade Runner, um, he was in all the ads. Did I pronounce that wrong? You're giggling. No, 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 no. Um, No, I was just just thinking, (laughs) oh, I haven't thought about Rutger Hauer for probably a decade. (laughs) Um, Well, that really blew up because it became like a multi-advertising campaign. And it became one of those water cooler kind of like conversations things where like, have you seen the latest Guinness advert? And it was like the first time really that Guinness had managed to get that. Um, So they kind of established a new kind of postmodern ads for them. Um, It took the idea of pushing brand recognition rather than the product further than ever before as well. Because each new chapter of, it was called Man with Guinness, it was designed to be a TV event and a social talking point. So by association, they were keeping kind of Guinness in people's mouths. <laughs> no pun intended. Nah. Um, <laughs> but even the way they dressed him in the adverts was on brand. Uh, I don't know if you remember, he, would, he was dressed head to toe in black and they'd kind of dyed his hair like super like white blonde. So he mm-hmm. looked like a Guinness. Um, it's kind of like Im- a boozy milk tray man. <laughs> Slightly hangover milk tray man. Um, the impact on sales again was massive. 22% lift in the first three months. They shifted an extra 37 million pints a year. Um, some of the classic lines delivered from that is, it isn't easy being a dolphin. And on the subject of colour, I'm with Henry Ford. Um, wow. Yeah, it was a weird one, but... It gets weirder. There's a lot of weirdness to come, don't you worry. Um, One of the first ones that I remember as a child is the next one. So six years of the kind of 
weird man with Guinness stuff. More than 20 ads. I didn't realise it was 20 ads that they did with him. Um, but they finally retri- retired the man in black. And in his place came actor Joe McKinney, the dancing star. Do you remember this one? So this, I'm not head, no. This is the one that I really, really remember. And it was the first one that was built on the theme of Guinness being a, a, a drink worth waiting for. Obviously, it takes, a, they say, as you said, 119 seconds to pour a Guinness. And so they really played uh, on and this a half, effort. 119 Sorry, and a half. 119 and a half. It's crucial. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was first broadcast in 1994, and it was just massively popular. So you had a barman who pours that first kind of like three quarters of the pint and rests it. And that stays in the centre of the screen for the whole advert. And all the time that that's on there... You've got the actor Joe McKinney dancing, like a really weird dance behind it. And the music, I think that's what... Rem- when I was reading this, I didn't remember the advert. Then when I Googled it and watched it, I was like, oh, I remember this. And it was the music. It's that... Yeah. I was like, yes, I remember this advert. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was massively popular. It actually put that song to the top of the charts at the time as well. Um but it never spawned a whole campaign, despite its popularity. Um, but it might be because there was a failed lawsuit from the original director of it. So they approached somebody to direct it, and um, he didn't end up directing it. But there was a failed lawsuit because he felt it bared too much of a resemblance to some of his earlier short films. And yeah, it, it didn't go down well. So unfortunately, that wasn't taken anywhere. But in 1996, two years later... That's when the black and white campaign started. And you said you remember a lot of that. Um, So the black and white campaign was a director called Tony Kaye. That's when he took the brand into the bit of the weird and wonderful world. It was quite submersive, some of those ads. The old man ad, the bicycle ads. Um, The strapline was not everything in black and white makes sense. So the adverts didn't really make sense. But the director said his intention was to make Guinness drinkers take a fresh look at the product and to force non-Guinness drinkers to think again about a brand that they thought they had neatly pigeonholed. Um, Personally, I I wasn't into that kind of era of adverts. I didn't enjoy them very much. But I guess they stuck with you. I liked those ones. They stuck stuck with me more. Mm, I think it was just that sort of 90s postmodernism, beautifully shot Mm. thing that I I liked about it more than the sort of quirky stuff which I felt like a lot of the other beer brands then adopted and overdid Mm -hmm. but for me I think it's the next chap they got on board Jonathan Glazer he was the one that I think has really changed the brand he was the guy that started the good things come to those who wait Um, I think the first kind of the, the debut advert that he worked on them was called swim black um, so it was almost like a little mini documentary almost in an advert about a guy that um, competes in like swimming competitions and he takes it very seriously. Um, he's a, he's an elderly man, um, but he's obviously been doing this in his hometown for a long time. It looks like a Mediterranean, like maybe Italian place, but it's just really nice colours. It's not black and white. It looks very just nice. <laughs> I can't explain it. Nice colours in the advert. Um They've got a nice kind of gruff voiceover. It's almost like they brought Guinness back into that working class kind of tone rather than the quirky weirdness. 
um, and it is. It's it's just nice to watch, but it still feels exotic. Um, so I think yeah. it's that that's the ad that I think provided the stepping stone into the next advert that he did, which was the big one, the surfing one. Everyone knows about the surfing yeah. advert. Iconic. <laughs> yeah. So that was 1999 was the famous, famous, famous Guinness surfing advert. Um, however, it's quite funny. It's been rated as the best TV ad ever in lots of different awards and lists. Mm-hmm. But lots of ad pundits do also cite that as the advert that set Guinness advertising on the wrong path. Mm. Um, I can see why. I think it sets such a high bar. Um but even the former Guinness marketing manager, the, the sorry, the marketing director, Julian Spooner, he thought that it took the advertising too far away from the product itself. He said it created a separation between Guinness, the advertising brand, and Guinness, the product. Um, sales at the time were decreasing a lot. So he was saying, you know, great Guinness advertising is great, but it does not equal great Guinness sales. So... They'd lost their way in that sense. Um, in the wake of the surfing advert, um, they had some that were more effective than the others. Bet on Black, I remember this one. Um, there were gamblers in an unnamed Latin American country placing bets on high-speed racing snails. Um, I remember that advert. I don't remember Dream Club. Um, it was a bit of a surreal one, apparently, with a CGI squirrel sipping a pint of Guinness. Um, then the next big just one, you, sorry, just yeah. before you move on, sorry, with Jonathan, Jonathan Glazer, do you mm. know who he is? Do you, do you know like what he did after that? No, I don't. So he, he did do kind of other ads and stuff. Like he did one for Stella. He did Levi's, obviously mm-hmm. like one of the other really massive ones that you were like, oh, I need to watch this advert because I love the advert and people mm. weren't necessarily talking about the jeans. Um, but he directed Radiohead's music video for Street Spirit, but then he went on to like film directing, which he still does. So he directed Sexy Beast mm-hmm. um, from the early noughties, uh, which is a great film. And then Under the Skin, have you watched that? That really kind of weird, creepy alien one with um, Scarlett Johansson in yes, 2013. Yeah. And then just did like a Martin Amis feature film in 2019. So uh, he's a very, he continues to be a very stylish filmmaker. Like if you watched the surfing advert from Guinness in the 90s and then you watched Under the Skin from the 2010s with Scarlett Johansson, this weird film, you would be able to identify it as the same director. Ah, nice. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Sorry, con- continue. When you said no. Jonathan Glazer, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't realise Jonathan <laughs> Glazer had directed that advert. Yeah, he did, he did a lot. Place. A lot of the big kind of award-winning ones. So another one in 2006. Um, so it, it was called Evolution, but it's spelled backwards. Um, because, I don't know if you remember the advert again, but it's three guys in modern day stood at a bar drinking Guinness and then suddenly it just goes into like reverse mode and it reverses them right through the ages. They walk out of the pub and as they're walking down the street, their clothes go back decades, decades. Then they go back into like different evolutions different like you, you see cavemen you see primates dinosaurs mm-hmm. all the way back and then it ends with that little kind of like weird newt looking thing at the camera just going there <laughs> <laughs> yeah um on paper that's been the best of the bunch it earned more awards in 2006 than any other ad in the world um 
but then the following year they just kept going even though at the time marketing adverts um, marketing directors were realizing that it wasn't equal in sales i think it just became expected of guinness to just keep producing these epic adverts uh, and so they did in 2007 they made an advert with the biggest budget budget to date it was 10 million pounds they spent on the advert called tipping point um it's another event ad um so it's a tale of some argentinian villagers using all manner of items to create like a massive domino effect which is actually started by that surge of the opening of a can of guinness that you mentioned so mm -hmm. it starts with somebody opening the can of guinness and then this domino effect starts but it goes throughout their village with all these different things that they've used so matchboxes it's not small it starts with dominoes but then it goes from dominoes to matchboxes crates ladders tires suitcases fridges mattresses oil drums cars it's just this epic sequence and then it finishes with a lot of books that once they're hit the, the pages flicker and turn and they create this pillar which is conveniently black and white like a big guinness in the middle mm -hmm. and of course the strap line good things come to those who wait so a beautiful ad but again arguably has little connection to the drink itself um, a lot of I mean, people that, that continues to mm. be like a contentious thing in advertising doesn't it whether awards should be treating them like a short film festival which it yeah. seems to me they do or mm -hmm. whether it should actually be about conversion like have you sold more stuff yeah <laughs> which yeah. it doesn't yeah again well, that's the thing, like stupid <laughs> in 2007 like it was it was again it was criticized as another expensive waste of like waste of time and money but the 10 year decline in sales at the time did halt <laughs> uh, sales in the second half of 2007 did increase by three percent in english pubs the beer market shrank by five percent during the same period so perhaps that 10 million was worth that three percent who would say <laughs> Um, however, the marketing um, manager at the time said, yes, Tipping Point did do well, but it was around the time that they started pouring money into other marketing efforts, um, a big one being rugby sponsorship. Uh, that's helped them massively. Um, I just want to kind of bring it up to the modern day and to what I think is their best advert of all time. And I think it probably cost not even 1% of the tipping point advert that they made. It was so simple, but I just think it is absolutely genius, this advert. I love it. It actually makes me feel almost emotional <laughs> when I watch it. It's so silly. I think it's just, and it's only because I think I work in advertising and I'm like interested in it all, but I just watch it and I just think, oh, it's just a masterpiece on so many levels. Um, so it was 2020, so obviously we'd been in lockdown, the pubs had been closed, it had been a rough time for everyone. And Guinness launched, just after the pubs had reopened, they launched their new TV advert called Welcome Back. Um, the music's a bit of a tearjerker anyway, it's a nice slow acoustic version of You Were Always On My Mind. And it's just showing really simple, if not mundane, scenes of like a quiet lockdown place. But they've cleverly captured almost like Guinness everywhere you look. So a black door with some white wisteria hanging above the top. Seagulls sitting on top of a black chimney. 
a black phone box with white graffiti on it, a black bin with a white carrier bag sticking at the top, some black and white socks on a washing line, and all the while you've got the you were always on my mind. And then it cuts to the three boys sitting back in the now open pub, drinking their Guinness, and then just that simple strap line again, good things come to those who wait. And then another line underneath, Guinness has pledged three, uh, £30 million to support pubs in the UK. And I just thought, mm. well, holy crap, that is so much more impactful than any of the other ads. Like, yes, I've enjoyed watching Tipping Point and The Surfer and that, but that one really made me feel something. I mean, if I, want, if I did like Guinness, I'd be like, hell yes, I'm going to just drink Guinness when I go to the pub next, because mm-hmm. that is great. It's so good. Yeah, and it really, like, historically, it really tells you something about the time, isn't it? I mean, as mm. we know, like, looking back through the decades of different advertising, you read into what else was going on in the world yeah. at those periods of time. And I think if people were to look back at that in 100 years, they'd be, like, that perfectly encapsulated, that pandemic feeling. Yeah, I just think they hit it on mm. the nose. It was perfect. And they've just managed to capture everything in there and... All those worries about it not being about the product or the brand, they've just put all of that to bed because you're just like, holy mm-hmm. crap, everywhere you look is Guinness. It's, yeah, it's great. It's so good. Are you done? I am very much done. I think that's a lovely <laughs> place to end. We knew this was going to be our longest ad break ever, but <laughs> um, it's for a very good reason, and that's because Guinness has such an, imp- I like, know. Such an impressive history mm. You know, when it comes to um, advertising and marketing. It really does particularly in terms of things like visual design and filmmaking. It's been so influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, shit London Guinness. <laughs> yes, I'm huge. So, yes, I know what you're going to say. I'm, look, I'm not a social media person, but I figured you'd know uh, what this is. I mean, I'm not, but I have heard of this. <laughs> it's a guy called Ian Ryan, who um, is, is an Irishman, actually. I think he's from Cork. Uh, when he moved to London, he actually didn't, he said he didn't really used to drink Guinness in Ireland, but when he moved to London, he sort of started to drink it as a reminder of home nostalgia type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he found that there were some truly atrocious ways of serving Guinness, uh, particularly in London. So he started a, a Instagram and Twitter handle called Shit London Guinness. And um, it is funny. <laughs> it's funny to look at some of the offerings. Yeah, he started it in November 2019. So shortly before um, kind of lockdown and pandemic, really. But obviously people contributed uh, to it since then. It's had uh, quite a lot of uh, views. Um, I found a quote from him. I think it was from the Metro. It says, a terrible pint is when there's too much head or no head. If the glass is dirty, so you can see the stains on the side of it. Also, if there are bubbles and stuff, you get that weird ice cream type look. And it's bad if it's in some mad glass, like a record lig one or something. <laughs> I think a certain person has it in them to send back a pint. And I'm just not that person. I'm not confrontational. I just take a picture and use it for content instead. <laughs> I would rather secretly drop a pint than take it back. <laughs> Um, he actually does have another account called Beautiful Pints, where you can see like properly poured uh, pints in beautiful settings and stuff as a nice contrast to that. So that's why I approve of this guy. It's not all mm. negative stuff. Like a lot of it is like funny and idealistic, actually. Um, so what does he say you should be looking for in a, in a good point rather than a shit one? Um, 
All good Guinness must pass what's uh, dubbed the tilt test, where you uh, tilt the pint a few degrees, and if the head or lack thereof swishes out of the glass, you've got a shit London Guinness on your hands. Mm. If the head crests just above the rim of the glass, it's good. You don't want to see a watery pint of Guinness. Head, it's got to have a domed head that rises a few millimetres above the rim. There's nothing worse than that thin line of head on a pint. And if the head is littered with bubbles, it's not been properly aerated, so you're in for a bad pint. It has to be in the right glass, uh, a stout glass in an ideal world. It'd be an OG Guinness glass, you know, the one tulip shaped rounded, no ridges, but a new ridged Guinness glass works too, or a non-branded stout glass. If you look through his recommendations, they all essentially boil down to go to a Guinness pub or an Irish pub <laughs> because they're going to do it properly. But there are some horrendous pictures of really bad pints on his, on his Instagram from like half of it being head to, as he says, like it all just spilling down the sides and having been overboard and all the things that kind of really upset your experience. For, for a very um, a very aesthetic pint, I would say, Guinness, most importantly, a lot of it's about the look. Mm-hmm. Um, regularly on our podcast, we talk about Guinness World Records. Yes, we do. So while... So I thought, well, I should talk about the creation of Guinness World Records rather than just throw another world record out <laughs> um, because they are related. So 10th of November, 1951. Prepare, like, prepare yourself for a good name. Are you prepared? I'm ready. Sir Hugh Beaver, then the managing <laughs> well, director. Was not ready. <laughs> yeah, I knew you weren't ready. <laughs> I don't know why, but the fact that it's a sir makes it better. <laughs> sir Hugh Beaver. It's so, I mean, it's it's so close to be Huge Beaver. Anyway. Oh, God. <laughs> sir Hugh Beaver, then the managing director of Guinness Breweries, went on a shooting party uh, in County Wexford, Ireland. And after he missed shooting at a golden plover, he became involved in an argument over which was the fastest game bird in Europe. Was it the golden plover or was it the red grouse? Um, just so you know, it is the plover. That evening at Castlebridge House, he realised it was impossible to confirm in reference books whether or not the golden plover was Europe's fastest game bird. Sir Hugh Beaver uh, knew that there must have been numerous other questions debated nightly among the public, but there was no book in the world with which to settle arguments about those records. So he thought, let's get a book that gives you all the answers um, that might be quite a, quite successful for various pub arguments. Um, Guinness Fellow Guinness employee Christopher Chataway recommended his university friends, called Norris and Ross McWhirter, um, who were these twins who had been running a fact-finding agency in London. And they started to compile what became the Guinness Book of Records uh, in August 1954. And initially they printed a thousand copies and gave them away. Now it's in its 68th year of publication, I think that would make it. Um, and it's published in 100 countries, 23 languages, has over 53,000 records in its database, and it sells over 100 million copies. So it's done phenomenally well coming out of essentially an argument in a pub as <laughs> to uh, how do we find out what this is all about, because it, essentially this is pre-Wikipedia days. How much do you think it costs to submit an entry into Guinness World Records? What, just to attempt one? 
If you wanted to get in the Guinness World, Guinness World Records, what do you think it would cost you? 50 quid. So, if you're applying for an existing records category, it's free. Oh my god, let's do it. If you're proposing a new uh, title, $5. Oh. <gasps> I did not think it would be so cheap to attempt to get into it. Like, surely there's a lot of admin costs involved in that. <laughs> I'm immediately top of the spreadsheet going in at number one is to get a world record for you and I. Yeah, I think we should think about this. Yeah. Um, so Guinness World Records says there are several types of records it will not accept for ethical reasons. I've made sure to talk about this for quite a while because I knew you were going to say, let's do a record. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to write extensive notes on what we're not allowed to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> although actually, like the ones I've written down, I don't, I don't think would cross your mind. Um, so uh, obviously, no killing and harming of animals. Uh, following publication of the heaviest fish record... Many fish owners overfed their pets beyond Aww. the bounds of what was healthy and therefore all those sorts of entries were removed. So obviously I think they'd originally intended like wild caught or whatever, but people were like, I want to get in the records, let's abuse animals. Um, similarly, in... <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said similarly. Here we go. In 2006, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records had an entry for Colombian serial killer Pedro Lopez, who was listed as the most prolific serial killer having murdered at least 110 people. Lopez claimed that he'd murdered over 300 people um, in the late 60s to 80s across uh, Colombia, Ecuador and Peru. But that was removed after complaints that the listing in category made a competition out of murder and was not ethical and also immoral. That's the one I was going to suggest. Fair point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's say no to that. Um, here's the one that's relevant. It's also dropped records within their eating and drinking uh, records section of human achievements in 1991 over concerns that potential competitors could harm themselves and expose the publisher to litigation. Uh, these changes included the removal of all spirit, wine and beer drinking records, along with other unusual records for consuming such unlikely things as bicycles and trees. <laughs> Nothing in there about... Eating hot dogs whilst upside down. <laughs> oh, no, but that has been a record, and it did. It, I've got, I think I've got something mentioning that actually in a minute. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, don't, no vodka and bicycle eating. I think is the kind of one. Of okay, the first things. right. Um, You're ruling all my ideas out. I know. Environmentally unfriendly records, such as mm -hmm. the releasing of sky lanterns and party balloons, are no longer accepted or monitored. Uh, in addition to records relating to tobacco or cannabis consumption or preparation. As of 2011, it's required in the guidelines of all large food type records that the item be fully edible and distributed to the public for consumption to prevent food wastage. So, we are allowed to do hot dog eating. Oh, great. Okay. Is, is what it basically that boils down to, as long as... Anything we don't eat then gets distributed to other people. I've got two which... very, very greedy dogs. We're fine. <laughs> yep. Nothing goes to waste in this house. <laughs> <laughs> so those are some things to bear in mind. Um, while we're sort of on this ethical slant, uh, and I'm being all high and mighty about it, um, Guinness sort of realised... Um, and by the way, like Guinness World Records was sold off as a separate company after the whole Diageo 
formation thing they sold off as a, as a separate thing so it's no longer directly associated with the brewery um, but it the company began to realize uh, that it could be quite lucrative um, to replace their falling book sales with income from the would-be record holders themselves so while i've already said that any person can theoretically send in a record to be verified for free it's a very slow approval process because it's massive and so those would-be record breakers would pay fees up to half a million dollars us dollars to get advisors adjudicators help in finding good records to break as well as suggestions for how to do it prompt services and so on in particular, corporations and celebrities seeking a publicity stunt to launch a new product or draw attention to themselves would hire Guinness World Records and pay them for finding a record to break or create a new category just for them. As such, to go kind of back to your section really, they have been described now as a native advertising company with no clear distinction between content and advertisement. So essentially, you can now pay Guinness World Records to do a stunt for you like uh -huh. with you and some of those have been quite contentious for example there are some really like innocuous sounding things like largest marble cake that actually belongs to saudi arabia's outlet of betty crocker uh, and okay. you think what's going on here and um john oliver in fact in his um uh, in his show in the, in the US, his satirical show invited them on to do sort of like a counter cake thing and they turned it down because they have a clause in their contract which says essentially you won't like undermine us or mock us or mock any of our um, previous attempts and stuff. So it's it's gone into quite dodgy territory, I would say, um, mm. World Records. Just to bring the mood down. Uh, <laughs> to continue the low mood, uh, you know the Black Velvet um, cocktail? Yeah, we talked about that in one episode. Yeah. So as a little, I'll keep it short. As a little reminder, it's a Guinness champagne combination. It was, and it was one of the royals, wasn't it? Yes. Hmm. Do you remember why? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, in response to the death of uh, Prince Albert, the... Um, has, the Prince Consort, uh, husband of Queen Victoria, when he died in 1861. So the legend has it that um, a bar steward at Brooks Club uh, at the time came up with it, saying that even a glass of bubbly should be in mourning and dressed in black. So it's actually champagne mourning uh, drink, black velvet. I've got one really good fact to finish off on, um, which is that Guinness commissioned a study in 2000, which found that an estimated... 162,719 pints of Irish stout go to waste every year via facial hair. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> According to scientists, 0.56 millilitres of Guinness is trapped in a beard or moustache with each sip, and it takes about 10 sips to finish a pint. An estimated 92,370 Guinness consumers every year in the UK have facial hair, Figuring they consume on average 180 pints each annually, the total cost of wasted Guinness annually is about $536,000. I mean, if it, if we were in the 90s and they'd worked that out, that would be one of those fake help groups. <laughs> <Would it>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's 
do you know what? That's as much as I think I should say. There's there's a whole world. Like it's there's a reason we've done Guinness as opposed to Irish Stout because it's such an enormous mm-hmm. company with so much influence and innovation. Any closing thoughts from you? No, I'm I'm done. Guinness is I'm spent. That was a big one. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to stop harping on, cease playing with our widgets, and clean the creamy head from our beards. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> what? That's disgusting. Is what? Or land or sea or fall You can always hear me sing in this song Show me the way to go home